All right, so welcome Marek Ozjevic uh, to the podcast. And my first question for you is about justice. Uh, if I'm looking at this right, your most recent book is about justice in young adult literature. Um, what drew you to that topic? And could you say a little bit about how you see Pullman's work perhaps fitting into that uh, that general area? Huh. Wesley, that's a great question, but it's in fact not a single question. It's a whole bucket of questions here, really about justice and what drew me to justice. But okay, uh, and Pullman, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, you could say that uh, justice is one of these themes that runs uh, as an undercurrent in much literature, in much philosophical reflection, in political reflection, are thinking about economy, about education, about so many areas of life and areas that make life meaningful are informed by our assumptions and uh, dreams of justice. Um, uh, for me personally, my entrance into this area was that I grew up in communist Poland. I was 19 when communism collapsed and I was 11 when Solidarity was created. And my dad was an active member of Solidarity. He would be arrested for a day or two days. He would disappear for a week, you know, and then we would find that, oh, he's in prison now. And, you know, are they going to let him go or not? So, you know, that was my childhood. And, um, now looking back, I know it was rather unusual, but at that point when you're 11 and 12, you kind of, yeah, that's, yeah, that's my dad. Um, these are, you know, cops again, you know, going through my room and are, you know, uh, turning the apartment upside down and looking for um, these illegal anti-communist pamphlets, prints, you know, pretty much like, uh, I don't know, um, the man in the high castle, but in the like 1980s, setting in communist Eastern Europe. So that was, that was kind of my life. But, um, but when I was, uh, I think, 14, a secret uh, agent, uh, secret police agent going through my room, uh, he uh, picked up a copy of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, uh, and he was so disgusted by the fact that I read books like these. And he, I mean, so I, I, rem I don't remember his face. I don't remember the details of the situation, but I, I was very profoundly moved by his emotional reaction to the book as if it were like he would probably have preferred to have found a bomb, you know, but the book, it was even worse. Uh, and, um, and it sort of registered in my mind as this very formative emotional experience. And only years later did I understand that, that his disgust, um, and, um, and, uh, was appalled by the book because he kind of knew that books carry ideas that are extremely difficult to control. Once an idea takes hold in your mind, takes roots, it's, I mean, it's beyond anyone else, anyone's control and especially in totalitarian regimes and systems where we're controlling how people and what people think is the key to, to the success of the regime books are extremely dangerous. So I guess that was my first <clears throat> entry into this thinking about justice. And over 20 years later or more, I somehow looking back at my readings, especially speculative fiction. So fantasy science fiction, <clears throat> a little bit of horror, a little bit of post-apocalyptic fiction, dystopia, kind of realized that this dream of justice is, is this very powerful theme in so much of this literature. 
Then I started thinking, okay, what is justice? Who defines justice? Justice for whom? Justice by whom? You know, and so um, and so I kind of tried to um, in this book. This is pretty much my uh, cognitive archaeology of the concept of justice, because justice is a concept, and and like other abstract concepts, it exists in language. We create structures that contain the content we call justice embedded in stories. Um, and uh, so that was my attempt to look at what are the types of justice, how justice is, how, how justice can infect, you know, young people's minds through the activity of reading. Um, uh, and I think it was, was okay. I would probably add a couple of other things now, looking back, but um, but I think it's it was an important um, step on my journey in terms of thinking about justice. And how did you become acquainted with Pullman's work uh, and start to kind of weave those themes together? Um, was it in the course of your your reading, um, sort of uh, for fun, or was it in the course of your professional reading that you first became aware of? Pullman's work, The Golden Compass? Uh, the Golden Compass, I think I read the first book when it was, uh, the European title was uh, Northern Lights. And that's that's what I read uh, when it came out. So it must have been like, I don't know when it came out, 99, right? Was it 99 or 97 maybe? Uh, I'm not sure about the European translations. That's probably about right, yeah. In yeah, so I read it immediately after it appeared, and I think this was by word of mouth. Uh, so this was reading for fun rather than for my professional, um, uh, for my teaching, even though I would later teach Pullman um, uh, in a number of courses. But so Pullman was incredibly, when I read the first book, then I, you know, with this anticipation, you know, waiting for the second one and the third one. So that was really amazing one of the most powerful fantasy works of the second, of pretty much the 20th century, I would say. And, um, and definitely something that when it appeared completely stood out from everything else out there. Uh, and Pullman pretty much established his own tradition, which so far I think has been still pretty much his own. I mean, maybe Robert Holtstock, Maybe there was a couple of other authors of fantasy, but then Holstock didn't write for young readers. Holstock wrote fantasy for adults, especially his Mythago Wood, um, or adults or slash young adults. But that was like a different kind of audience uh, than Pullman. Um, but Pullman uh, was amazing. So his storytelling, absolutely brilliant. The concepts he, he introduces into the narrative, this whole conceit. So not only alternative worlds, but but this key concept in the series which is the demon so human body and demon this is so brilliant so brilliant um, and also the use he puts uh, it to so so this contesting the very idea of religious um, maybe not religion per se as catholicism specifically or maybe monotheistic religions in general um, i'm kind of I, at this point, I think that maybe he wasn't sure what he was doing at that point. So sort of it was being pulled in a number of directions. And, um, um, but it, this gives the books this sort of explore, exploratory nature. 
they're open-ended so you can there are moments where where you it seems like the author himself isn't sure where the story is taking him and in many ways the story took pullman in into areas that he probably didn't anticipate nor was he comfortable exploring these areas but that's the power of a great story yeah i i like the description of it as an exploration um, and what you said also about uh, incorporating his books into your classes, uh, I'm curious, what would you recommend reading alongside of Pullman, or how would you construct a course around a, a, a deep exploration of Pullman's works and themes? What sorts of other um, literature would come to mind? You mentioned one author who I'm not familiar with, but the Mythago series. Mythago series by Robert Haltstock, a British author. Okay. Robert Holtstock. Um, I don't know. I mean, Pullman, because these, this series is so amazingly innovative and it's so packed with, with all kinds of themes, references that you can, it depends, you can use it for a number of courses, for a number of issues in terms of uh, literature, for example, as so great literature as a dialogue with literature that was before it. Pullman is a wonderful, wonderful example of dialoguing with past traditions. So he's dialoguing with Milton, he's dialoguing with Blake, he's dialoguing with the entire Western Christian tradition, with the Bible in the first place, of course. So, I mean, this is, this is an amazing um, uh, illustration of the power of a good story to engage and transform and open your eyes on what you thought you knew, the entire you know, tradition of, of civilizational literature. I mean, so uh, pretty amazing, so in this sense, but also the power of fantasy, which still, especially in the Anglo-American world, is burdened with this um, sort of negative, all kinds of negative uh, associations, escapism, uh, cheap thrills, um, inability to, to confront reality, all of those, you know, really negative associations with fantasy. And Pullman himself, interestingly, is also, or was maybe, a victim of these prejudices, and which came out when for many years he would claim that, no, I don't write fantasy. And it took him maybe 15 years to admit, you know what, I kind of, yeah, I actually write fantasy and I'm good doing this. And, and so, so that was one of his sort of dark sides and prejudices that he inherited as a member of a given uh, a culture, and also as an as an agnostic or a atheist, because a Pullman sort of ten tended to assume at some point that if you write fantasy, you gotta be a religious person. So fantasy and religion go hand in hand. They are the same kind of or two sides of this of this. Um, mistaken belief about nature or cluster of mistaken beliefs about the nature of reality and, and human beings and whatnot. So, so that, I mean, like the list of uses, how and why would you read these books is like, <laughs> sky is the limit. I mean, these books work so wonderfully, like the question of technology, the question of meaning, the questions about all kinds of philosophical questions about the nature of reality, about human curiosity. What is the nature of human curiosity? Is curiosity good or bad? What is it good for? What is it dangerous in, you know, in what kind of situation? I mean, it's like, oh my goodness, it's, it's a coming of age story in so many ways. It's a story about the relationship of human beings to 
non-human persons also. So this, this whole idea, because a lot of Western literature is based on, pretty much literature is our um, um, myopic and, um, and anthropocentric small cabinet of mirrors in which we look at ourselves from different angles, but it's only about humans, 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 humans. And, and one of the advantages of fantasy, and this is also something that Pullman, Pullman stumbles into in this book, is that it opens our eyes that, well, no, this planet or this universe was not created specifically to put you here after a gazillions of years. So this is a preparation for me, you know, parading around. No, sorry, there are like thousands of other beings and they have their own reasons for being here. And, and you know, realizing that multiplicity, diversity, and these relationships across space and time is one of the most wonderful things that literature does. And, and Pullman also succeeds here. I, yeah, I'm curious about that in connection with um, the original question about justice then. Um, is it primarily a learning about um, other new ideas, you know, sort of uh, history you mentioned and, and literature and maybe biology or ecology, sort of other concepts like that? Or is it a, primarily a, a work of imaginative um, growth and uh, seeing things in a new way, if that makes sense. Is that, is that a fair distinction to make? Um, do you think that in teaching people about justice, you, you would privilege or, or give primacy to one or other of those options? It's, this is to explode the question even bigger, but like, is education about developing people's imagination, which seems to be what, what fantasy primarily does? Or is education really more about um, learning content and techniques for mm -hmm. um, specific, you know, content? Yeah. No, content is too easy. Content used to be the the thing about the, in education, but it's becoming increasingly irrelevant because computers have overtaken us in terms of storing content uh, and even uh, sorting content. So, so we we, you know, the and we're standing at the dawn of artificial intelligence and uh, um, we within within our lifetime we will see probably implants or maybe some other technologies that will help you store content but it's so much more difficult to uh, so of course we know that a lot of knowledge has been sort of relegated outside of your head you don't need to remember a hundred phone numbers your phone remembers 10,000 no sweat so I mean, you're not wasting your precious intellectual energy on remembering phone numbers. The same thing with content. So content is pretty much, I mean, it's important to know facts and content. This is important, but the, the modes in which we store it and access it have changed tremendously. Uh, however, the skill of, of um, filtering content and making connections among content and filtering what is relevant, what is less relevant, what is central to this argument, what is central to that argument, seeing different points of view, how the same fact matters is far more important in this context, but less important in that context, you know, those kinds of connections, this is intelligence. And, and in terms of this intelligence, artificial intelligence is lagging behind us, like behind human beings by, by centuries. I, I don't know. I mean, some, some, People in AI believe that we will never reach that kind of intelligence and I mean artificial intelligence in terms of making these connections like thinking metaphorically uh, making these big you know thinking analogically and so forth I mean it's it's amazing but um, but coming back to your question I 
um, I think that the power of great stories, so thinking about literature, is that they do all of those things and way more than we realize at the same time. So we, you know, what, what we process in terms of when we read a story, our ideas, connections, associations, is only a very narrow band of what actually happens to us when we read. And there are actually theories about the importance of forgetting. That it's just as in we, we assume that when you read a book, the important thing is that you remember what you read. But it turns out that forgetting what you read, it's even, you know, then, then you have, it's just as important for the formation of your knowledge and building and of another, you know, building block of your understanding. And that's why when you have five people reading the same novel, these five people will remember it differently. And that's why when you come together and you discuss it, someone mentions this episode or this quote or someone said this and that in this context and you and only then you remember oh yeah really it did happen i had no idea so you know these processes are largely uh, subliminal in terms of we've been trying to figure out what literary understanding is or what narrative understanding is how come we understand how we how do we understand a story and it's uh, so we're sort of making headway in um, with that but but a lot of how these processes work for individuals. So we can talk in sort of general terms, cognitive um, processes that happen in pretty much every single reader. But then within these processes, in terms of contact, content, connections, associations, and meanings, these processes are so individual, they're organic in many ways, uh, very difficult to trace, to sort of uh, describe in uh, this, uh, prescriptive way so you can only describe them looking backward and they apply to an individual reader's understanding rather to you know a sort of a generalized statement that applies to everyone so i what i would say yes we learn um we we're not always sure how we learn nor are we sure what exactly it is that we learn through reading stories but the power of great stories is that they are uh, in cognitive science, they call them multiply indexable knowledge structures. So it's like a bundle which has a, a thousand and one different strings through which you pull it and it opens into something. And then you close it again and you pull it through another string and it opens into an elephant. And then you pull it, so you can, you know, you can do with the same story an amazing array of uh, uses yeah. because it has so many of these like entryways. So I, that's one idea. Yeah, that's that's very interesting with respect to Pullman's sort of materialism, which is an interesting um, form of it, right? Because you have this being which is connected to you, your demon, right? Mm -hmm. Which is not entirely physical the way that the person's body is physical. It seems that it has it bears some relation to them because as they grow, it changes and their relationship to it changes. Um, and I wonder about um, what you're describing as sort of the cognitive processes that are going on. Um, do you have a sense of whether it sounds like we don't understand them well enough to reproduce them uh, digitally or technologically? Do we have a, a grasp on what material processes or chemical processes are going on there? Um, what sorts of, if you can speak a little bit about the neurological um, component of this or the biological component of this, 
um, what do we know about that and how, how far can our, our understanding of those processes uh, go, does it seem? We know quite a lot. Um, I won't be able to give you specific quotes, but in terms of the description of like physical, biological, um, neurochemical reactions, we have these descriptions of what happens when people read, what areas of mind lit up. And, but frankly, they're pretty boring. They're very technical. It's like, you know, when you look at this wonderful meal that you're about to eat and someone breaks it down into calories, fiber, this and that, and they give you numbers. So you have this exquisite list of facts. It's so untasty, you know, and it, it you know, no matter how detailed this list is, it really doesn't tell you anything about the experience of eating this meal, right? So we have these descriptions and uh, one of my uh, big um, questions that I'm struggling with is that, yes, cognitive science is a great tool to describe some of the mechanisms, especially subliminal mechanisms that happen when we read. But at the same time, the more detailed you get about this description, the more it turns it into a very technical, um, uh, you know, this technical language with, with, which, which dries out the description, like punches a hole in what we're talking about, which is the experience of reading and the transformation of our thinking. And you know, thoughts are not necessarily material things. We we don't know. I mean, you can. You, we know that if you damage certain part of the brain then certain connections don't happen, like depth, uh, your vision changes, or, um, or maybe short-term memory disappears. So we know, but, but so this is a, a good analogy, but also, I mean, if you damage the, the screen of your computer, it doesn't mean that, you know, YouTube is not streaming. It's just not streaming on your screen, you know? So it's there somewhere, but so we, we tend to, so we know that hardware and software are just as important. You need to have the physical gooey brain to, to think about love and meals. But, but love and meals and everything else in philosophy is way beyond this gooey cauliflower substance that you carry in your skull, in your cranium. So uh, we, I mean, the, there are descriptions and it's, there is a, an entire subfield of, um, of developmental psychology, for example, that deals with these cognitive structures, cognitive development, and so forth. And, um, and it's important, it's, 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 I find it interesting, but I also am aware of its limitations, that it's not the holy grail, oh, finally we got it, you know, we know what happens when you read. Well, we know what areas of your brain lit up or not, but, but we need a different way of talking about the quality of this experience and, uh, and and the question of how reading or uh, encounter with art is transformative, like personally transformative, that's, that's a whole different issue which, for which we're still struggling after, I don't know, three, 4,000 years, we're still struggling to find words to describe it. We, we just, I mean, it's not that it's a mysterious spiritual process, but, but we haven't come to this full articulation of what happens, how it works exactly. There are just so many factors at play. Yes, the, the last thing, if you could just say a brief bit about your description of these kinds of fantasies as mythopoeic fantasies. Yeah. Um, is that maybe a way get, of getting at a, a more holistic picture 
of, of the human experience of this transmission of stories and what they do to transform our experience. Um, mythopoeic is a, is a word that is derived from Tolkien, is that right? Uh, how are you he using always it? invented it, but then he applied it to Tolkien's writing. And Tolkien himself spoke about his aspiration to create a new myth. And the whole idea of this new myth is, and that's why mythopoeic, the word is that something looks like myth or feels like myth. And, and the, the thinking behind this concept is that um, we live in, we, we are always aware of how we inhabit our bodies. Like you, you close your eyes, you're, maybe when you're in deep sleep, you don't feel it. But otherwise, you, you really feel like the ending of your body, your fingers, you know, when you touch something, you, you, you have a sense of your boundaries, how you live in your body. Even if you close your eyes, you also have a sense of how we inhabit physical space. Like, you know that you're in a room, even if there is a wall in front of you, you know there is something behind this wall and so forth. So, like, we have the sense of being in space. But very few people are consciously aware of how much, how profoundly we inhabit language. We are creatures of language. We think that language is here or here or there, but we actually move in spaces of language like a gecko moves within the space of terrarium without being aware that it lives in a terrarium. So, and, and you know, a language, if you don't have terms for something, if you don't have words, if you are unable to articulate concepts or experiences through words, you are unable to, to objectify them, to see them and to do things with them. I mean, language is actually like a tool, like a hand. You have a hand, you, you do things, you know, through your hands, you handle tools in the same way we handle reality through language. And, and myth is one of those terms that has been used as this um, umbrella uh, concept for the structures of language that we don't, we're not aware that they define us. And in myth, of course, very specifically, myth, myth has been used for traditional stories. Societies tell themselves about important things, including gods, but not necessarily, not only. Um, um, but in this larger sense, myth would be a structure of beliefs that you are probably born into or maybe acculturated through your upbringing. So these are the ideas that are seem natural to you, behind which we, we like are absolutely, like this is our wall, conceptual wall. We we're, cannot imagine anything beyond it. And uh, for example, capitalism in this sense is a myth. We, we're, we seem to be unable to imagine any way that a society can be organized other than along capitalist lines. And religions, most religions also function as myth systems because they are predicated on a set of beliefs that like if any of these beliefs disappear, then your, the meaning of your existence collapses. Um, so that was one of those arguments that, that Pullman attacks, for example. So the argument would be, if there is no God, there is no morality. If there is no morality, life sucks. And, you know, it's unrewarding. So Pullman says, well, duh, yes, there is morality. You can be a great person without believing in God. And you don't need religion to, to tell you what things are good, what things are bad in life. You know, you can figure it out yourself. So that is how he challenges and sort of punctures this, you know, the myth of religion and uh, 
specially revealed religion uh, that is sort of very pyramidal and comes like authorities top down. You know, someone above you knows more and they tell you and then you say, oh, sure, I will do that. So, you know, he says, no, we don't need that kind of structure. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I know we're going a little over time here, so I'll, I'll let you go. Although I still have a few more minutes because oh, my son great. was supposed to be here at five, but he's not. So oh. I need to leave a quarter past. So we yeah. still have about 10 minutes. So, yeah, the, the thing that I would then come back to with, with the, the idea of Pullman um, dismantling a kind of existing myth or his interpretation of that myth, I feel that he's also attempting to put forth his own, right? Construct his own, um, and he he might not yet have a fully worked out notion of what that is. Um, but in the course of the story, you get sort of hints of that. Uh, the demon is a big one, but also dust, right? This sort mm -hmm. of mysterious, again, material, and yet not easily pinned down or reduced mm -hmm. to our concept mm -hmm. of material. Um, do you have a sense that the kind of consciousness and curiosity that seems to be represented in dust, um, does it, does it line up kind of with, or, or bridge maybe the, the mythic understanding and the more scientific, uh, rational, like what's the, what's lighting up in the brain sort of understanding? Um, does that seem like a, a metaphor that can, um, be I don't know be something like uh, the measurements that we're becoming uh, able to do, uh, or is it more of a, a mythic, uh, a creative or imaginative uh, representation of of human experience? Well, time will show. In ten years from now, twenty years from now, when we have more advanced systems or artificial intelligence. Or super. Once we develop super intelligence, maybe super intelligence will be, or the Internet of Things will be, this kind of dust that crystallizes consciousness, that that reaches certain threshold of crystallization through objects, and then has intentions and can communicate with others, other intentional agents. So that's possible. Um, I, I I remember that when I first read these books, that the idea of dust was such a wonderful bridge. I thought between our scientific and spiritual understanding, maybe more on the sort of scientific leg here. But my guess is that within the next 20, 50 years, when someone reads Pullman, looking back, this would seem, this might seem so sort of quaint, old, dated, and super fantasy, you know, like flying backpacks in the 50s, which people thought, oh my gosh, that's the future. It's now science fiction, but it's going to be the future, or blasters, you know, those kinds of things. So um, I think that Pullman is far more um, an inheritor of these fantastic modes of thinking rather than scientific, current scientific, even though I think he would vehemently oppose and say, he said, he would say, no, I'm 100% science. I speak the language of science, which is probably true to an extent, I would say. Um, but, um, but this concept of, uh, of dust that permeates and exists everywhere throughout the entire universe, all levels and multiverses, levels of existence and multiverses. Um, this is pretty much Pullman's um, return, probably unconscious, to the idea of, um, 
of maybe either ether, maybe not ether, but ether because ether was thought of as a space, but this um, animist consciousness, which we know from beliefs of so many cultures on this planet, you know, animism meaning the belief that everything is alive, although on different levels of, of what it means to be alive and on different levels of consciousness. So rocks are alive and they're conscious, but they're conscious in different ways than a plant is or a human being. So um, you could make a strong argument, I think, that Pullman inadvertently resurrects the concept of animistic perception of the world, which he uses as a weapon against structured hierarchical revealed religion. Um, uh, but, um, but it is certainly a wonderfully realized concept in these books, yes. Yeah, That's and it's, it seems brilliant. like it's one that he's continuing to explore, even as he's writing his new, his new trilogy that's, yeah. that's coming out. Um, uh, the next one should be coming out pretty soon, actually. Um, the, um, the way that uh, he, he promotes um, conscious thought and, and sort of, yeah, gets into the idea that there's intelligences out there which we can communicate with, which are different from our own or on sort of a different level than our own, um, is I think one that is um, partly from his experience of, of writing stories, you know, from being a creative artist, right? That That's sort of the sense that he seems to describe what writing feels like to him is uh, like the narrator or the story itself sort of taking mm -hmm. uh, a shape or mm -hmm. having a kind of personality to it. Um, and I wonder how much of that is um, uh, something that he intuits and how much of it is something that he has also sort of absorbed from other authors like Lewis, uh, who speaks in a very similar manner. Um, That's This connection, I think, would be, at least used to be quite disturbing for Pullman to recognize that he might be operating as an author in very much the same way that authors whose work he deplores and hates, you know, Lewis or Tolkien or other fantasists. So, uh, but I, I think you're right. This is, this is a great point that um, Pullman is, it's, it's not just pure invention. What he, what, you know, he's thinking about does that in many ways, it does seem to reflect his experience as a creative uh, author, writer, who knows what it means to be inspired. He knows that there are these moments where the story comes to you, invites you, pulls you in, and you're pretty much recording like taking dictation. I mean, and, the, and this, is, this is a process that many authors, poets, uh, visionaries, artists have experienced in whatever the, uh, the, the area in which they work is. Uh, so I'm pretty sure that Pullman is building on that experience. Uh, and at the same time, he's also, he also offers his, especially his recent book, offers a great example of, of how our brains work and there is a book. Okay, I gotta open the door to my son who's outside of my office. I will lead him in and get back. Okay, I'll just give me a minute. Be right back, Wesley. So, okay, so I 
And this, this brings me to a book, which I don't remember the title and I don't have it in my office now, but it's, it's a book by uh, Australian psychotherapist and um, author. His name is Hugh Crago, Hugh Crago. And the title of the book is, okay, it's there, but I can't recall it. But so he pretty much entranced by story. Okay, entranced by story. That's the title of the book. So Crago wrote this book based on his, I think, thir over 30 years of experience as a therapist, storyteller. Um, and he, his thesis in this book, the argument he builds is that our minds work on the software of stories, but depending on our age, so it's not the age of the mind, so it's physical age, but also life experience is sort of, I mean, these boundaries are blurred, but he pretty much says that in different stages of our lives, our brains are drawn to, ver drawn to very specific types of stories. Sometimes endings are extremely important, but not beginnings. Sometimes the middle part is important, but not the beginning or the ending. You know, then themes differ. And, you know, all kinds of um, absolutely fascinating, brilliant argument of how the two hemispheres are in this dialogue and how they, um, how they are one or the other, like, takes the upper hand. And they help us create and enjoy specific types of stories at different stages of our life. Um, so I think that many of the claims that Crago makes in these books are wonderful illustrations of what Pullman has done as an author with his fiction, allowing in some, there are moments in these books when he is so extremely rational, very much left hemispheric then suddenly there is a switch and you have a right hemispheric narration which is mythical complex uh, organic so you cannot break it into the separate strands or parts um and uh, and this recent book uh, la belle sauvage which pullman wrote i think over close to what 20 years after writing the first ones i mean you can i mean i can tell the difference He's a different person, different narrator in this book and than in the first three. Um, so even seeing this shift and how in La Belle Sauvage, his interest is slightly different than in the first three books, it's, it's another um, interesting case in point to a discussion of how our minds create stories. Because we are, our minds are, are hardware's brains, hardware's that run this software called the story. Gosh, yeah, that that gives me a lot of material to uh, to process and to uh, continue reading. Um, again, thank you very much, uh, Merrick, uh, sure. for your time. And uh, I I will I hope that we we keep in touch and um, that you're you find some time to keep going with your writing projects and research and everything. Um, and I wish you the best. Uh, thanks again. Thanks, Leslie. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure to to talk to you. I thought that the questions you asked were brilliant. These are really deep, penetrating questions. And I keep my fingers crossed uh, that you explore 
Pullman's work, another work, and let me know how it goes. All right. Um, and whenever you're ready to post this this conversation, also send me a link. I'll be yeah. interested to check it out. Okay. And um, yeah, let's keep in touch. Thank you very much. Have a good one. All right. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Again, many thanks, Dr. Marek Ozievich, for taking the time to talk to me. That was back in November, actually, but I've had a number of guests since then who are speaking uh, with me about specific parts of the book, so I had to post those in between. Um, so sorry for the delay, but I hope you enjoyed it. Um, a little more about uh, Marek. He teaches at the University of Minnesota, a uh, professor in literacy education, uh, the Sydney and Margaret Henry Professor of Children's and Young Adult Literature. His uh, interests include studying um, the nature of people as storytellers and, and story hearers, um, the role of justice and ethics, uh, global consciousness, environmental awareness, um, and uh, well, you can see for yourself on his webpage. I'll post a link to it in the description and on the course page. Really impressive. His uh, recent book, One Earth, One People, uh, won the 2010 Mythopoeic Scholarship Award in Myth and Fantasy Studies. Uh, his recent book, Justice in Young Adult Speculative Fiction, um, it goes more into detail about uh, the topic of justice, as I think we discussed in that talk. Anyway, um, thanks again. Dr. Ozievich, and uh, with the remainder of the time here, I wanted to just uh, mention in passing that more reviews are up uh, from the Historic Materials Illuminated um, essays. Uh, those are up on the blog. I'll keep on reading around in Pullman, uh, his critics, his admirers, things that he recommends reading and things that he's clearly read uh, and continue to uh, broaden the field of uh, research for this project. All of that will be posted on the blog and uh, I'll try to link to it from time to time in the descriptions here. Um, I've also put up some more songs and these will be uh, uh, Tiny Flowers in the Arctic, then uh, Fencing, and finally, the Tunguska campaign. Hope you enjoy. <laughs>